Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. And my name is Kevin Fulton. Today we're going to go back again to Canada uh, and talk to Julia Kreiner. And Julia is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto who recently published a paper in the BioArchive. Uh, regarding resistance to weeds, and we talk about this all the time here, about glyphosate, the mechanisms, the risks, and um, really haven't d- dug into how resistant weeds happen and how resistant weeds spread. And uh, Julia's done that. She's actually uh, studied this for a while and has come up with some ideas about populations, adaptation, and other types of uh, interesting aspects of resistance evolution. So welcome to the podcast, Julia. Thanks so much, Kevin. Happy to be here. I'm really glad to have you on. This is kind of fun. And But first, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, you're a PhD candidate, so you're on the downward slope of that particular effort. What, what are you studying and what is your background? Yeah, definitely. So I started my undergraduate degree at the at the University of Guelph, and I, I got involved in plant genetic research there, studying um, polyploidy and, and the doubling of, of plant genomes and the evolutionary mechanisms that lead to that. Um, and kind of when I started my, my PhD research, um, together with my advisors, we figured out this really interesting kind of collaborative program that uses this evolutionary motivation to understand this really applied problem, and that's the evolution of resistance. And so resistance has been looked at from a lot of different perspectives, but lesser so it's used as kind of this evolutionary model system to look at how adaptation is occurring. And so we're really interested in in, um, taking that perspective and that novel approach to understand the population genomics of glyphosate and herbicide resistance. That's a really good question and terribly poignant because the emergence of resistant weeds, and it was happening before glyphosate, every single um, strategy to control weeds is overcome by evolution of weeds that come up with mechanisms to get around it. But what are the major problems that people are experiencing today, um, particularly with respect to glyphosate? Yeah, so like just going back to where this issue stems from, it's you know, the problem is that weeds are really competitive and, and they're actually outcompeting crops for these limited resources, you know, reducing the productivity of these agricultural uh, practices and suppressing crop growth. And so herbicides are used to do a lot of the heavy lifting to mitigate this problem. But when weed populations evolve resistance to any given type of herbicide, they can no longer be controlled or suppressed by that product. And so one approach has been to use mixtures of herbicides to actually circumvent this and try and prevent you know, these plants to evolve to multiple different herbicides. But we're actually seeing species and populations that are evolving cross-resistance to many modes of herbicides. So, so the issue now is becoming that 
we're actually running out of herbicides that can effectively control these problematic weed species. Well, what are some of the specific problems with amaranth? Yeah. Um, and, and the one that you mentioned here, can you help us understand the difference between the amaranth studied in your study versus, say, palmer amaranth or some of the other uh, amaranth species? And, you know, how, how do they become resistant? Yeah, so uh, you mentioned palmer amaranth. Um, that is a congener. It's in the same genus as amaranthus tuberculatus, our focal study species here. And so these two species together are the most problematic resistant weeds or just weeds in general for agricultural practices in North America. And so they're they're competitive, but they're also extremely fertile. They can produce up to 5 million seeds per individual. And so the problem is, even if you initially just have a couple seeds that somehow got into your field, these populations rapidly establish. And with these large population sizes, you really get a ton of evolutionary potential because mutations can occur on all of these different individuals and evolution can happen extremely rapidly. And so, uh, so the wheat species in the amaranth this are really pose a huge issue to uh, these, you know, productive agricultural practices in, in the United States. And, and now it's starting to spread to Canada. So amaranthus is really never a, a problem for agriculture in Canada. These Some of these species are amaranthus tuberculatus occurred naturally in these areas. But now in the last 10 years, it's, it's really starting to become an issue. So we're trying to really get ahead of the, the problem here in Canada and, and, and help to mitigate you know, the, the evolution of resistance in, in the in Midwestern United States. How does um, amaranth become resistant? We know that there are something like nine different mechanisms that weeds have to work around glyphosate. And it has to go from either uh, ways of keeping it out of the plant to maybe vacularizing it or whatever they do, ways of turning it over. But how does amaranth become resistant? Well, amaranth it has been res- been uh, documented to be resistant to uh pretty much every type of herbicide that is being used. Um, and and these, this resistance can occur through, uh, really simply, it's just a single nucleotide change in the target gene. So, for example, um, glyphosate targets the gene EPSPS, and a single nucleotide polymorphism um, can actually prevent glyphosate from being able to bind to that gene and inhibit it. And so that these plants become resistant, they are no longer inhibited by that herbicide. So that's the typical or kind of easier to characterize genetic control of resistance is these target site resistance mutations. But you mentioned uh, metabolic resistance. And so another pretty common genetic mechanism of resistance is this metabolic type that instead of being a change at the target site, you can actually get the accumulation of small effect mutations that occur all across the genome. And these can occur in a bunch of different genes, like you said, related to um, the uptake of these herbicides, their transportation to different parts of the organs, and, and, and their breakdown. And so um, in this way, you can actually get polygenic resistance um, occurring. And so that is harder to characterize um, because it's these small effect mutations that don't necessarily pop up, you know, on a, on a scan across the genome. What's different about glyphosate resistance in amaranthus is that it's actually conferred by the amplification of the target gene. And so the target EPSPS gene actually increases in copy number, and this actually buffers the inhibition of EPSPS by glyphosate. 
Yeah, so it actually makes more copies of the enzyme that is the glyphosate target by by, by amplifying the DNA. So how does that happen? I mean, you're looking at um, one gene turning into a dozen, or what exactly happens there? Yeah, so we, we think it's mediated by uh, unequal recombination. And so it's just this slippage during pairing in meiosis that causes, you know, it'll lead to a deletion in one uh one genome copy, but it'll lead to a duplication in the other. And then that duplication is going to be selected for because now that plant has higher resistance than the one without the duplication. Um, and it's really interesting. And we're not really sure um, how how exactly it's mediated, but we think there might be transposable elements, these really repetitive regions of the genome that lead to um, this slippage during recombination and, and the amplification of EPSPS. Yeah, and I guess you don't need many cases of it happening. When you're making 5 million seeds, yeah. the opportunity to have this occur in a very finite n- number in that pool and still have profound impact on a on a farm or, you know, in terms of producing new genetics is, is pretty big. And so what makes that a really interesting system from your standpoint as a scholar studying evolutionary biology? Yeah. So, I think that was our thinking as well that, you know, this amplification presumably might be a lot more rare than a single nucleotide polymorphism that might arise. And perhaps it might have only arised once and spread across the range. And so we were really interested in in understanding how recurrent the evolution of resistance was. Was it just occurring this one time and spreading across the range? Um, via gene flow, you know, whether that's seed-mediated dispersal through the sharing of machinery or perhaps pollen-mediated gene flow, or is it actually that this amplification is arising multiple times? And so herbicide resistance more generally is this really interesting study for uh, a really interesting system for studying evolutionary biology because it's actually this unintentional experiment that we've been conducting, Right. We've been recurrently applying the super strong selection pressure to natural populations and watching them rapidly evolve. And so we can actually learn a lot about more generally how quickly plants can evolve over short time scales and how repeatable evolution is. Could you talk a little bit about the general approach to how you started to answer the question? Yeah, so... Um, we worked with Patrick Trunell, um, who's a, a researcher at um, the University of Illinois, and Peter Sikina, also a weed scientist, but in, in, in Guelph. And we realized that we had kind of these two um, temporal contrasts of, of the evolution of resistance in that we found some populations in Ontario that were really recently emerged. They had only been documented there. I mean, occurring is problematic in the last 10 years. And in contrast, in, in the Midwestern United States, you know, these populations in Illinois and Missouri have, have been a problem for t- the 20, 30 years. It's really kind of the epicenter of this invasion. And so we thought we could use that um, to understand how populations are spreading particularly these new emerging populations in Canada, um, and how repeatable evolution is. So are, are these populations um, in Canada, have they spread there via gene flow, the Midwestern United States? Have they evolved independently to agricultural environments? And do they have different origins of resistance? So that was kind of what we were trying to get at. 
And we could actually use genomic data to look at the signatures left behind from these different types of of adaptation, whether it was from pre-existing variation, from new mutations, or from gene flow, and look at patterns of relatedness among populations to figure out where these populations are coming from and how independent resistance is. So when we get back from the break, we'll talk about what were the findings of the study and what we're actually learning about this. We're speaking with Julia Kiner. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto. And we'll be back with the Talking Biotech podcast in just a moment. Hello, Talking Biotech listeners. This is Nick Syke from No Ideas Media. If you've never heard of No Ideas Media, we make science and agriculture communications videos to be shared on social media sites like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. The videos are not bad, if I do say so myself, and they are pretty effective at communicating complex science and ag topics to the general public. But in order for them to reach the public, I need people like you to share the videos widely. I also need people like you to support No Ideas Media through Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding site, kind of like Kickstarter, but it works on smaller monthly donations. So if you'd like to help No Ideas Media continue the work that we're doing, please go to patreon.com backslash noideasmedia and consider being a patron. Thanks very much. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're talking with doctor, doctor, almost doctor. <laughs> How far do you have to go? Just a couple of years, almost there. Okay, Julia <laughs> Kiner. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto. And that's the best time of your career next to your postdoc is that last go on the break the tape. So, you know, you're, yeah. you're, in, the good, you're in the good part. <laughs> and she's publishing wonderful papers of exciting stuff. So we're speaking about that today. Um, so we ha- you guys did surveys and it actually was a large comparative genomic studies of different populations to kind of get a sense of the texture of sequence polymorphism to understand population dynamics in amaranth. And so what were the main findings? We found that there was these two nearby agricultural regions in in Canada, these recently emerged agricultural populations. And these are really close to to each other geographically, but they had dramatically different um, origins that we could gather from our genomic data. So in one region, resistance had evolved through the introduction of this of this U.S. genotype. It, it seemed as though there was a seed translocation um, that had led to um, this population establishing in Ontario. And its most uh, closely related population was actually one in Missouri. So this really long distance um, gene flow that led to um, the spread of resistance into Essex County, Ontario. Um, what was interesting was really nearby um, in Walpole Island, Resistance seemed to have occurred on this natural background, this genotype that we seem we we only find in riparian habitats, and this was really interesting because Walpole Island actually used to be um, a wetland, or it is a wetland, but it's been continually developed for agriculture, and so we think recurrent selection for for from glyphosate and for these agricultural practices has led to the rapid evolution of resistance in Walpole and which is a completely different story from what we're seeing in Essex. Um, and when we traced 
that back and compared to how that compared to our Midwestern populations, we saw that there was many, many more origins of glyphosate resistance in the Midwest. And even within populations, sometimes we'd have multiple distinct amplifications occurring within a single population. And so these mutations had been arising multiple times and repeatedly in the Midwest. And so it kind of makes sense, right, in that the Midwest, we know these populations have been established for a much longer time, and presumably they have been experiencing selection from glyphosate for a longer time. And so there's much higher levels of standing variation for these resistant um, amplifications, these resistant um, individuals um, in the Midwest compared to in Ontario and these these populations that are, have been naive to agriculture um, evolution is really limited to this single origin and occurring in this really mutation limited context. Well, when you look at the totality of, of amaranth and what you're learning from this then, and just to maybe summarize what you just said, is this really just the same plants that are spreading, you know, by different mechanisms, or are we really seeing prevalence of new mutations? Yeah, it, it really seems like both. I mean, one agricultural region was exactly the same as uh, one from Missouri. And so we're seeing the potential for long distance spread via gene flow. But within a single, within the Midwest, there's tons of origins, tons of multi, um, independent mutations that confer glyphosate resistance. And so, you know, it's really challenging um, thinking about strategies to, to mitigate this because we're seeing independent evolution and we're seeing gene flow. And so it's really all of these modes of evolution that it could be is, is occurring. And how much of this can we really apply to other herbicides? What we're learning here is there other herbicides obeying the same mechanism. And, you know, can you really learn more about the idea of evolution of an adaptation to herbicides uh, from the study that is applicable elsewhere? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so understanding kind of the ev evolutionary potential of a, of a species to a certain type of herbicide can really help us get a sense of how these weeds evolve in response to other potential herbicide applications. So, for example, now we know that diversity in amaranth is, is extremely high. Population sizes are really huge. And so we know that these resistance mutations are are likely going to be arising to most herbicides that can be applied, right? And so um, I think understanding, especially for these really problematic weed species, more about the genetics and evolutionary potential can really help us uh, get behind how repeatable these processes actually are. Yeah, and so if you had to um, give, say, a prescription towards the use of either future herbicides or maybe as dicamba becomes more prevalent or if it becomes ever does, uh, what would you recommend would be um, good advice to uh, folks to limit resistance? Yeah, so I think we can use these types of studies to really inform our management strategies um, to be more targeted to the, you know, the biology of the species we're studying. 
Um, so in Amaranthus, we're seeing that there's multiple origins of resistance. It's arising independently. And so that's because of this repeated selection from glyphosate. Um, and really, there's no way to avoid that resistance evolution unless we're being extremely conscientious with our herbicide use in agricultural practices, you know, really doing the proper crop rotation, um, making sure we're not applying sub, uh, sub doses of glyphosate and selecting for low levels of resistance. Um, these are going to be really important to prevent the, to prevent future evolution. So we're also seeing that resistance is occurring through gene flow. And so perhaps we also need to think about, you know, sanitary practices for the sharing of machinery um, to prevent the evolution of, of resistance from spreading. I think we we know that herbicide resistance is, is extremely repeatable, right? Weed scientists for a long time have been trying to characterize the different genetic mechanisms and how many species these are evolving. And, and so... And so we know that this is highly repeatable, but less often do we really think about how many times the same mutation can arise and, and you know, the evolutionary dynamics at play there. And so I think we've only really seen the tip of the iceberg when we talk about the repeatability of resistance evolution. And really, resistance evolution is happening within populations multiple times. And so this is really a, a big scale issue and, and challenge for farmers to mitigate. So what's next for you in terms of uh, your career? Do you want to stay in weed science or evolution or work in industry or academia? What do you like? Yeah, I, I think I, re I really identify as an evolutionary biologist and I'm really fascinated about, you know, the, the, um, the integration that evolution can have in, in, in addressing these really challenging practical issues. And so I'm really excited to carry on with some research in amaranthus and, and think about um, how rapidly adaptation to agricultural practices more generally can be. And I'm, I'm kind of open whether that's going to lead me to industry or, you know, staying in academia, but the research is just so exciting, so I'm happy to see where that takes me and, and the opportunities that I might have in the future. Well, very good. So if people want to learn more about you or your program, uh, do you have a, a Twitter a, a Twitter username or maybe a website that they could check out? Yeah, definitely. Uh, my Twitter is jmkrines, um, and I have a website that's jmkriner.wordpress.com. Very good. And I'll put links to your website as well as to the paper on the Talking Biotech episode website. So, Julia Kreiner, thank you very, very much for joining me today. Best wishes going forward. And uh, if you ever want to be a co-host on the podcast, just give me a call, okay? Awesome. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to Talking Biotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, Scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration.
Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.